0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. There is an outline handout on the back table if that will help you as well to take your own notes or just to follow along. This sermon I am re preaching essentially from July 31st, 2022, when we were doing a, a series on church polity, church government. But I thought it would be uh, greatly appropriate uh, now, today, on a day that we are especially setting apart Josiah Vincent for the work of deacon, uh, be appropriate to focus the ministry of the word this afternoon on the same topic. And this is a a good place to start, I think. So the title of the sermon this afternoon um, is The Office and Role of Deacons. There was another sermon which I encouraged everyone before we voted on uh, deacons. Um, Not too long ago, I encouraged everyone to listen to a different sermon on the qualifications of deacons. So this is not that sermon. This is focused on why do we have deacons? Uh, What are they supposed to be and do? And to what has the Lord called our brother Josiah? Also, though, as the sermon unfolds, I hope you will see... This isn't just about what do we have deacons for, but what should that tell us about what the rest of the church should also be doing um, in church ministry? Well, first of all, just just to start thinking about this topic, we need to be able to honestly ask the question. Does our definition of the office and role of deacons come naturally from Scripture? Uh, When we think about the role of deacon, the office and role Uh, Does our definition in our mind of that emerge naturally from the text of Scripture? That's a good question to ask about any topic, and especially this one. Uh, The Confession of Faith, um, Second London Confession, says this in chapter 26, paragraph 8. It says, a particular church, gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world are, number one, bishops or elders, and number two, deacons. Is that biblical? Two offices, elder or bishop and deacon? And, and what are those offices? If we look at our own church constitution, Article eight, Section Three, it says Deacons are responsible for ministries of mercy and compassion, the secular affairs of the church, which are to be administered with spiritual grace in cooperation with and under the spiritual oversight of the elders. Is that a biblical definition? I think it is, but we need to see why. Why from Scripture is that a biblical definition? Notice a number of roles that deacons sometimes fill in Western churches. um, Roles which we would say are not ordained by God. Um, For one thing, deacons might sometimes be treated as lay elders, but, but biblically, they're not interchangeable with lay elders. They're not an additional board of official spiritual advisors for the congregation, Though spiritual maturity is required of deacons, um, and so that would make them wonderful sources of spiritual counsel. Deacons are not the board that truly runs the church. They don't hire and fire pastors. And neither are they some sort of check and balance in relation to the elders. They're not like congressmen toward the president in our federal government. Well, what are they? Well, uh, while elders are ministers of the word, servants of the word. That's all ministers mean, servant. While elders are servants of the word, deacons are ministers or servants of mercy and the secular affairs of the church, as our constitution says. And for both elders and deacons, we're using that word minister, again, not as some pompous title, but in its original sense of a servant, someone devoted to a task on behalf of others. Well, let's look at the story of deacons and their realm of service, first of all. We'll just go through a number of texts in the New Testament to see this unfold. How did this office come to be in the New Testament church? If you turn to the book of Acts, first of all, from the beginning, Acts chapter 2, there is this emphasis on the church meeting the needs of those within the membership. Even the physical needs, not just the spiritual needs, but loving each other in the body of Christ means caring for temporal needs as well. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now that is right after the day of Pentecost, and right away, the church, I could say almost instinctively, but I'm sure the apostles instructed them about this. The church knows we ought to love each other tangibly. And some of these people may have been losing their sources of income, at least eventually, um, because of their newfound loyalty to Jesus, the Messiah. But people are helping each other. And as a result, it's not that this was a commune like communism, where people are forced to each to not have private property. But the point is they had all things in common. People were willingly selling what they had to uh, make up for the lack of others in the church as any had need. Acts chapter 4 then, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then, of course, it goes on, not to our point, to talk about Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about how much they were actually giving. But um, this was such an emphasis in the early church that some, hypocritically, like Ananias and Sapphira, even um, were tempted to make themselves look better by being in on this whole thing. But our point is, people like Barnabas and many others were caring for the temporal needs of those around them. But originally, they were bringing these things to the apostles' feet. And the apostles, who were functioning like an eldership there in the church in Jerusalem, originally they were the ones who had to administrate all this. Who got what? And that leads to Acts chapter 6, where there's a problem. Acts chapter six verses one through seven. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily Diaconia distribution. That word for distribution there is where is again a related word from where we get the noun deacon, from the daily service or distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God, literally, that we should give up or neglect the word of God, to serve tables, to deacon or serve tables. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, the diaconia, of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith this fits very nicely with our morning sermon from Ephesians chapter four uh, where paul emphasizes the ministry of the word which causes the body of christ to mature and grow right and, and then as each member speaks the truth in love to each other but So the church in Jerusalem was growing, but as more and more people, particularly widows, were dependent on the church, and rightly so, for their physical needs, for their sustenance, there was too much for the twelve apostles to keep track of, if they were going to devote themselves to prayer and the service of the word. They couldn't do it all. Much like, uh, in a different context, but in some ways much like um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, found him trying to meet all the needs of everybody in the congregation in the wilderness. And he said, you're going to we'll wear yourself out, probably kill yourself, and these, wear out these people if you try to do it all. Similarly here, the apostles say, this isn't good. And this complaint that Greek-speaking widows are being less well taken care of than Hebrew-speaking widows, this complaint is a symptom of a bigger problem, that we can't do all this adequately so notice what the apostles who were then functioning as the elders the the um, spiritual leadership of the church notice what they tell the congregation therefore brothers verse three you as a congregation pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty So they had the congregation select men whom the apostles functioning sort of in the role of elders at that time. The apostles would appoint these seven men as deacons, uh, meaning those devoted to a service or ministry of temporal needs. Notice the apostles did not say, you know, the widows are just going to have to figure it out. Uh, because our ministry of the word is too important to neglect for their sake. No, they didn't say that. They also didn't say, we're sorry, we have been spending too much time on the ministry of the word. From now on, we're going to devote more of our time to the widows. They didn't say that either. The Christian widows really did need the church's resources for their daily sustenance. But the apostles conclude by saying that they would remain devoted to a higher service or ministry, not serving tables, but serving the word. And they include prayer here as an activity that obviously has to accompany their proclamation of the word. We'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It would be tragic if widows in the church went hungry. But the apostles are saying it would be even worse if the scriptures were not rightly handled and properly ministered To the entire congregation. And that takes time. And effort. That's why there must be elders. And deacons. And ever after this. Look in the New Testament. Look in the New Testament. There's no other place. That will explain. Why and where deacons came into being. But in the Greek. It's very clear. We got this word for deacon. From this text. Serving tables. Serving temporal needs. And it's an essential thing in the church. This wasn't just a temporary thing in the church of Jerusalem. After this, we see where the apostles started churches. We have elders and deacons. This is, this is the pattern we now have from the apostles of Christ. And um, Galatians 2, 6-10, we see this continued concern in the early church for the poor among the saints. Uh, people who would be dependent on the church. Galatians 2, 6-10, through 10, Paul says, uh, speaking of his visit to the church at Jerusalem, he says, From those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God chose no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, Now, the church, if you read this in the context of the New Testament, the church's organizational mission is not to be a philanthropic, um, primarily a philanthropic institution for the poor in general. But the focus in the New Testament is the poor believers. We take care of those in the body of Christ specifically. It's not that we never do anything for those outside of Christ as far as their temporal needs, and I trust we in our private lives as citizens in this world do such things for the poor in general. But in the New Testament, when we think about the church organizationally, it does have responsibilities to those who don't have enough in the congregation. It's a big emphasis. So Philippians 1 verses 1 through 2, we find it assumed already that uh, in a church there are Overseers, bishops, elders, and deacons. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have in 1 Timothy 3 8 through 13, Paul instructing Timothy and the church at Ephesus um, what to look for in men who should be deacons in Ephesus. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, a one-woman-man idea, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that in his instructions to Timothy and the church at Ephesus, Paul, he gives regulations not only for the office of deacon begun in Acts 6, but also later in 1 Timothy, he gives regulations for the original realm of ministry that began that office in Acts chapter 6. Again, 1st Timothy 5, he emphasizes the support of widows. 1st Timothy 5, 3, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than, than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So not only does Paul speak of the office of deacon, he speaks of those who are supported by the church. First of all, Widows who have nobody else. And then uh, the elders at varying levels, depending on their their work in the church. Now this, as I've been hinting all along, this should lead us to the big picture. The big picture of tangible love within the church. We could have all the right offices in place. We could have all the right uh, structure organizationally and miss the point. Couldn't we? We need to love not only in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth, the Apostle John says in our churches. So the big picture is one of tangible love within the church. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now what's one example, James, of looking at the word and not doing it? What's one example? Next verse. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice the emphasis on orphans and widows, visiting them in their affliction, which doesn't mean showing up to their house. Hi, I'm visiting you in your affliction. How are you doing? Oh, that's horrible. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. Bye. Bye. No, visiting them like God visits us in our affliction, drawing near to them to help, right? It's such an emphasis in practical Christianity. And we dare not appoint deacons to be in charge of such matters if we ourselves care nothing for such matters. We all need to have this mindset to visit those who are in need in their affliction. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One more text before mentioning some more applications. 1 John three sixteen through 18. Some direct applications of what we've already read in the scriptures certainly would be the church supporting not only their elders and overseers, but their widows and orphans. But there's applications beyond that, I think, if we're thinking in the big picture, aren't there? And remember, while deacons might often oversee efforts to meet temporal needs in the church... The entire congregation is responsible to help meet the needs. It's just that the deacons are heading that up, making sure it gets done at a certain level. But it's not that we appoint the deacons and say, okay, they'll take care of everything. And we don't need to worry about it now. No, we all have a role to play. Sometimes there can be tangible or financial gifts for specific needs in the congregation. One application of that would be the deacon's fund, of course. But you know, it's wonderful when we have a hard time maybe thinking how to use the deacon's fund because you folks are already meeting the needs. That's a good problem to have. Sometimes there can be financial gifts for brethren and ministers in other places. It's not just about our local church. We see this example directly in the New Testament. This is what the churches did for each other. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send Diakonia, to send relief, is translated, to the brothers living in, Ju- in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In that day, they had prophets who could foretell the future, like Agabus did here. And they, he said, the churches, the brethren in Judea, the Jewish Christians, are going to suffer greatly if we don't do something to help financially. There's going to be a famine. So they sent diakonia, they sent service, they sent relief. Gives you another example of the flavor of that word. Romans 15. Later, Paul, that wasn't a one-time thing. Later, Paul, as he planted Gentile churches, he got them in the habit of sending relief to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Romans fifteen twenty two. this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my diaconia, my service for Jerusalem, may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Likewise, 2 Corinthians 8, I won't read all of it, um, Paul talks about how the churches in Macedonia, though they themselves were poor and didn't have much, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the diakonia, the relief of the saints. Third John, verses five through eight, the Apostle John says, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So sometimes financial gifts are appropriate to support those who, in this case, it sounds like the evangelists we talked about this morning, Ephesians 4. They go out for the sake of Christ's name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, from unbelievers. The church supports them. We support missionaries. It's a faithful thing to do, John says. But there might be other ways to show our love tangibly to each other. Temporal needs. And our church, like every church, should mature over time in how it thinks about this. And how everyone in the church with their unique talents and places in life, unique stations in life, can help us in this. There can be ongoing help for non-financial needs. There can be assistance for parents of children with special needs. And there's some um, parachurch organizations that try to help with this, but the church should be leading the charge. (laughs) There might be efforts of Christian education, whether that's assisting homeschoolers or running a Christian school. That can be a very real need in a church or among churches. How about mentoring fatherless children, whether or not they are technically orphans? How about coming alongside, as a man, in an appropriate way, kids who need mentors? Not that you're becoming their dad, but they do need you in a certain way. How about assisting the elderly and the infirm with tasks, things they can't do as well for themselves? at their house, on their property? How about providing meals or other help for those coming home from the hospital? Uh, I appreciate the meal trains and such things that um, happen in this church, in those situations. And it's, um, it's good to see folks do that, but sometimes we can get distracted. And I know there are emergencies where we have to be the recipients, not the givers. I know that. But we always need to be pushing ourselves just a little bit to see, am I really too busy? Do I really have nothing to contribute in this situation? Or can I, even out of my poverty, like the churches in Macedonia, can I still contribute? (laughs) That's love for the body. There can be providing transportation for those who temporarily don't have a vehicle. And the list could go on. You fill in the blank. There can be lots of needs that we just have to have, to which we should have our eyes open. So it's my prayer that God would make us those who excel not only in hearing and speaking the word, as Ephesians 4 emphasized this morning, but that God would make us to excel in being doers of the word by laying down our lives for the brethren. And not to say, oh, I lay down my life for the brethren, you just can't see it. There needs to be outward, tangible stuff happening, if that's true of us. So let me end, before we have a a break, uh, let me end with Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. We're always, and let me introduce it this way, we're always using our time and our finances and our energy and what we have from God, we're always using it, Investing it somehow in life. If we're not investing it in the brethren, we're investing it somewhere. And that's what Paul wants us to think about. Are we sowing to our own flesh or are we sowing to the spirit of God towards that which would be the fruit of the spirit? Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I'm very glad that unanimously the church has recognized that Josiah and his wife qualify to be a deacon and a deacon's wife in our midst. And I, am, I expect that the Lord will do great things through our current deacon, Richard Romero, as well as our new deacon, Josiah Vincent. And I trust they will be able to lead us well in, the, in terms of the temporal needs of the church. Uh, Yes, buildings, finances, things of that nature, but also mercy ministry over time. But let's back them up. Let's be a church that, as a body, we're all doing this. It's not just a few body parts over in one corner of the body saying, Hey, we need to do this, and we just give them the thumbs up. (laughs) And that's that's all we give. Let's back them up. And let's be invested in day-to-day life in the needs of the brethren. And then if we're doing that, what we talked about this morning can happen much more effectively. We can much more effectively speak the truth in love to each other if people know that we actually care for them. We've all failed there at times, but may God help us to excel as a church over time in this. Let's pray together and then we will have a break so some people in nursery can come in and join us. Let's pray. Father, we are each naturally selfish. Forgive us for being so willing to receive grace from you and to receive your good gifts, but often far too unwilling and stingy toward others in giving what's good to them, particularly those in the household of faith. Help all of us to be servants and to seek greatness in your kingdom, not, not in a selfishly pompous or arrogant way, but in a Christ-like way. May we have Christ-like ambition to be the servants of all. And if we are a church like that, Lord, we know we will never lack for men to be good deacons among us as well. But may the big picture be right, Father. Again, we thank you for our brother Josiah and for this occasion in which we can officially recognize him as appointed by your church and thus by you to this task. Please continue to meet with us in blessing today, but do so in a way that changes each of us on the inside, translating into outside actions. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.